Welcome to The Triple Bottom Line, where we reveal how today's business leaders are reaching a new level of success with a people, planet, profit approach. And here's your host, Taylor Martin. Hello, this is Taylor Martin with The Triple Bottom Line. For our first podcast ever, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about The Triple Bottom Line and what it means to me, because when you Google The Triple Bottom Line, you can find a lot of different things and a lot of different definitions. But you know, when I heard about it shortly after 2000, it was coined by John Uckinson in 1994, I believe. But when I found out about it in 2000, I guess three, I was blown away by the idea of really looking at a company in a holistic view. Even back then, I was thinking about sustainability. Sustainability and then the, the social part, the person, the people part was something I hadn't really thought about that well. It opened my mind to that. And ever since then, I always thought about it as like a three-legged stool. You know, I always felt like if a company had a really good sustainability process in place, of course, they're going to have a good financial structure in place to be profitable, to run a business. And then if they also focus on people and the community in which that product or that company revolves around, then I feel like that company is going to be really successful and in so many more ways than just, just money. I could see a company like that, you know, being what we call now some timeless company, company for the long term. One thing I've always been blown away by is how it never really caught on. This is what, 26 years later, after John coined that phrase, and here we are starting a podcast talking about it. One of the reasons why I started this podcast is I wanted to talk to people that are in the field talking about it, people in the trenches, you know, business leaders, thought leaders, industry leaders that really are talking and working in that space, and maybe they don't even know it, and maybe they're really focused on one niche of it. Maybe they're just sustainable, or maybe they're just talking about profit, you know? But when I hear conversations talked about, you know, the sustainability or ESG reports, CSR reports, I always feel like it's such a high-level approach that it's somewhat removed from what's really boots on the ground, what's happening there. The Triple Bottom Line podcast was born out of that because I know a lot of people in the industry. I've worked with a lot of different companies. I've been in the industry of graphic design, communications, marketing, investor relations, advertising, advocacy for 25 years now. And I've helped all different types of organizations communicate and do all kinds of things, whether it's designing logos, brand building or brand rebuilding, restructuring, doing ads or advocacy campaigns on Political Hill sometimes within a 24-hour window when I was living in D.C., and working with corporations on doing annual reports, you know, or CSRs, ESGs. We can talk about that at another time. But anyway, I, I wanted to start this podcast to get that conversation rolling. Today, I am extremely happy to have Frank Tineski with us. He is a industrial designer that I've known over the years. We always get in these really deep discussions about those three items, about the triple bottom line. And I thought, you know, Frank, I, I want you to be my first person to uh, interview because we've already had these conversations so many, so many times over. Let's invite the world into our conversations and let's get this ball rolling. But first, I want to have Frank tell you a little bit about himself. I, I think he's like an industrial design genius guru. He's always talking about technology and what's, you know, the latest thing happening. And I always enjoy our conversation. So Frank, tell everybody a little bit about yourself, would you? Well, hey, Taylor, first of all, I have to say how honored I am to be 
the first person that you invited to do this because I hold you to such high esteem. I mean, you not you not only talk about it. I mean, you live it. It's part of the ethos. And I'm, I'm perpetually inspired by you. You've, you've been a big influence on my work, in fact. So I think we have this symbiotic relationship, this kind of push-pull relationship. And we don't always agree, but we always exit with provocative conversations. So when we go to dinner and our wives get along brilliantly, so they're, you know, they have to pull us away from the table. So this is an extension <laughs> of that. I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to share our thoughts and ideas with, you know, whoever's on here. And just, I have to say, just crazy respect for what you do and, and the quality of work you produce and the inspiration you give, not just to me, but to so many people. So thank you very much for having me on. You know, when I think about the triple bottom line, what you were describing it as a stool, which, you know, is, I actually inverted it in my head where I was thinking of it like a pyramid, right? Like, you know, these three pillars kind of lean on each other to form this like diamond shape, which is, you know, which is the strongest shape. So it's kind of, it's sort of, sort of indicative of the way we see our, our different camera views on things and, but, you know, different, but complementary. Agreed. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to kind of for the audience, I mean, I, I'm a designer of things and experiences and, and I won't go on a lot about what I've done, but, you know, well, I have a mix of experience that includes everything from designing toys to automobiles to medical equipment and for large multinationals and startups and a lot of UI UX work and experience work. So, you know, throughout the ages, I've been, you know, grappling with a lot of the things that you that we talk about. We thought that, hey, what, how fun would it be to sort of share this in more of a more of a spread spectrum sort of approach like this here with this podcast? So, so yeah, you're going to fire questions at me, and I'm going to stumble and, and try not to make an idiot of myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, thank you for uh, being here, and thank you for those kind words. And you know, I'm a little embarrassed by it, but. I'm just so happy to have you on here because like I said, the things that we've talked about over the ages, and I know that well, I'm, I'm going to have you back for a, another episode later, because again, we're going to be talking about so many different things. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, and this has been, you know, something I've been thinking about, because it's, it's not so much you, but what you think. I want to know, like, what are the top three things that ID directors or designers are challenged with to make more sustainable products? Like what are those three things that like those big three things that they have to, you know, work against, you know, they grind against yeah. to make more sustainable. Okay. Well, Hey, just, just to be clear, this is not, you know, this is very indicative of the natural conversation we had. Cause we, when we touched base on this just moments ago, I haven't given this like a deep, deep thought, right. Cause it's not well, well rehearsed, but three things do surface almost immediately in my mind. And uh, I'll talk about them a little bit. It's, it's, you know, quality, cost and location. Mm -hmm. So I'll take the first one on, you know, there's not a designer I know out there that doesn't care a lot about the environment. There's this duality between like real high numbers, like, wow, I designed this product and there's millions of them out there. And then you're haunted with this thing. You go, oh my gosh, there's millions of them out there. And you start to think about that volumetrically, like how many of those things are out there? What would it fill? What's you know, the footprint? And am I doing the world a service or a disservice by, by making things? And it's a struggle, not just I have. Every designer has this sort of haunting duality because we love to design beautiful things. We want to see our stuff out there. We want to enrich lives and, and, and experiences for people. But then there's, there's the, the back-end consequences about what we're doing. So there's always this propensity, this sort of, I don't know whether it's inherent to our nature or it's born out of guilt. I'm not exactly sure, but we always want to put better products in play. Throughout the ages, I think, or ages, I think throughout, many, at least throughout my career, both myself and my colleagues, we, we try to put sustainable products in the pipeline, right? Materials in the pipeline. The biggest challenge is that designers don't own quality. And, and what does that mean exactly? I'll, I'll try to explain it. 
if I try to change a material that's common in play, like for example, if you're designing a, a vacuum cleaner, for example, like that might be made out of a cycloy, which is a material very, it's a the version of ABS plastic. And you don't have to really know what that is, except the characteristics of that material is that you can, you can run it into you know, the baseboard of your wall, right? And your vacuum cleaner is not going to fracture. It's very flexible, very malleable, hides scratches, et cetera. Very different than say polycarbonate, which you would use in like your eyeglass frames or maybe the shield of a motorcycle helmet or something. So the idea of, of just saying we're going to use a corn-based you know, starch resin or something, it sounds good and it might be good, but the challenge there is the development cycle times for products are usually very short which means there's not a lot of runway for the, for the mechanical engineers and the procurement people who own quality to get those products in play. So they're like, look, we've got 28 weeks to design this product, Frank, and you're coming with me with this polyrasmataz stuff that you want to use. And I get it. It's green. And we all want to do that, but you don't understand. Like if the product fails in the field, it's on me. Or I don't know that I can make that material optically clear. Or I don't know if I can make that material behave in the way that you need it to behave to meet the design criteria we're designing for, inflexible, malleable, whatever the case, or rigid or impact resistant, what have you. And then there's the other overlay that you have sort of existing systems in place. You know, when you're molding products, and we're talking about plastics, obviously, but you have things like mold flow and, and pressure and cycle time, like how fast the mold opens and closes and how fast those parts can be pushed out. And part of the total calculated cost, what they commonly call the bomb cost or base of material, is you know anchored to existing information. Someone could look at that apart. It's kind of like guessing somebody's weight at the circus. You know, if you do that all the time, you could look at somebody up and down <laughs> and go, "Yeah, you're 140 pounds." You know, and be pretty close. Yeah. You know, you're going to get close. But when you have these blind corners that you can't predict, that's one of the biggest challenges. And what about the other two? You said you said quality. Yeah. So so quality. So that's one of the big ones. You know, designers kind of run their good ideas up the flagpole and they get so far as they get to the people where they're like, look, we're on a tight timeline. We can't get it done in time. We don't know the material characteristics. It's high risk. And it's, and it's not on you, designer, if the product fails in the field. It's on me, the engineer or the quality engineer. So they're risk adverse, right? Even though everyone is well-meaning. The second one is cost. Always, right? Always cost. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, like, for example, there's some great stuff happening where one thing I'm investigating currently is a powder coating material. And if, if anyone's not familiar with powder coating, imagine it like talcum powder. You, you take a metal part and you charge it and it's charged with a, a negative or positive charge. And, and then the powder is the opposite charge. So it actually clings, a powder, you shake it and the powder like clings to the material. And then it goes down a paint line and it's baked in an oven. And it gives you a perfect paint job, very durable finish, really great. It's not very environmental. You know, if you have a barbecue grill, for example, might be powder coated and metal parts are typically powder coated, very durable, like your, your old refrigerator and, and whatever olive green it might've been, would've been a powder coated finish, right? the material now can be made out of recycled soda bottles and it could go, it could travel down the same paint line. So unlike, you know, molding something that might require different mold pressures, different procurement and so forth, maybe different machinery, you know, powder coating is, is for example, a sustainable option with a recycled green material, but it's going to add cost, right? So what that comes down to is people's willingness to pay. What's unclear you know, especially now, I think one of the things that we're going to be feeling, I'm kind of ab-libbing this right now, is sort of new ideas popped in my head, is it might be more difficult than ever when we get into more cost containment 
economy with ever, certainly everything that's happening, people are becoming more cost conscious. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for value. And unfortunately, you know, value comes with, you know, what's already been commoditized. So lots of competition for materials or mature supply chains and abundance and everyone's competing. It's those other, you know, it's those other green materials that often carry a premium. I've often been been an advocate personally, although I don't know, I'm sure material people would argue with me, but if you can make virgin materials that are not recycled be at a cost premium, right? To make recycled materials more attractive, right? Then you can re- achieve a balance. So, you know, if I'm going to buy a brand new Mercedes or something or high end automobile, maybe I don't want my wheels to be made out of, you know, recycled aluminum, right? Maybe I have, maybe there's a cost premium for, you know, virgin materials. You're talking about like tax, like a tax. Yeah, on yeah, a- yeah, potentially. Sure. I mean, you know, we have to do something about it. We, we're on a spinning rock with finite resources. And, you know, and there isn't sort of, I feel the same way, by the way, about architecture. I mean, it's, it's cheaper to go tear down a forest and put up a new building than it is. The tax incentives are, are, are better than it is to, you know, regentrify a, a community that's in decay, right? So, you know, it's, it's another illustration of how we really need to rethink, in my opinion, underscore in my opinion, how we should, you know, consider how we might do that. And, and then the, the third one is location, 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 location. Mm, of course. Here's a, a real life scenario. You know, one of my first careers was designing toys for Fisher Price, which is ironic because all these years later, I'm designing, I'm designing products and leading design for kids too, another toy and gear company. I love doing the work because it's so challenging. But when I was a young guy at Fisher Price and junior designer, the factory that made the stuff we were designing was across the street. Mm. So, you know, we, we, would, we would go grab lunch and like go, go across the street and like go see our stuff going down the line. It was exciting. You know, it'd be a junior guy and, you know, see your stuff converting ideas into raw materials. And I remember one time, you know, this was a, in a different location at Motorola where I later went. Same, same thing, I, you know, still pretty junior in my career. I thought I was a hero because I took some snaps out of the assembly. Or actually, I took screws out and added snaps. But, you know, the guys with their red rags on the back pocket, you know, working on the factory line, they're like, hey, are you a designer? And I was like, yeah, you know, I was really proud of myself. You know, like, I'm the guy, right? And they go, come here. You know, and they showed me how the decisions I was making as a designer had an impact on their assembly process. It was really hard to do that. You know, you snap one of these things together, you do like three of them, no problem. You do it for eight hours and your hands want to bleed, right? So there was this direct corollary between designing and manufacturing, the sort of yin and yang of thinking and doing, right? Mm-hmm. The challenge I have now is I am hard pressed to find a designer, that, like hire a designer out of school, design school, that's even seen a factory. <laughs> you know, they, they might have, you know, where my generation, a Gen Xer, I spent time working in it out of sort of Cleveland, you know, different odd jobs and picking up factory work or whatever, getting experience, you know, the factories were around. So even if you didn't work in them, you, you were at least in proximity to a factory. Right. But today, I just can't afford to send a junior designer to Daomin, Dongguan, Shenzhen, wherever the case may be, Taipei, or, you know, to, to see where these factories are. It's, it's, you know, it's 19 hours away, respectfully. And it's probably a rolled up cost of like, you know, you figure two weeks, you got, you know, you got a hotel and you got travel, it's 10 grand, right? So that's, a, that's you know, OPEX wise, that's really expensive. So your, your young designers don't really carry the opportunity of sort of trading and interfacing with the factory to learn how to design sustainable products. Well, what about like 3D printing? Doesn't that allow some sort of mid-road view of a product or is it just not the same? Absolutely. It's a great topic. 3D printing is, is I'm re- really passionate about 3D printing. 
I was involved with 3D printing while at Motorola when, when a 3D printer that was kind of terrible. I mean, it was, you can buy a MakerBot now for like 400 bucks. That's way better than what we paid a million and a half dollars for in 1993. And that sounds like a long time ago, but it's really not. So additive manufacturing really is 3D printing and additive manufacturing is really happening. But right now, 3D printing is really more about 3D prototyping because the post-processing involved in taking a 3D printed part I want you to think of 3D printing like almost like a deck of cards. It's like many layers of part like printed, which, which means it kind of has a grain to it, like wood, right? So it's, it could be very strong in the Z axis, but not so much in the Y. So, you know, it has its own limitations, but 3D printing has, has definitely reduced the cycle time and the subsequent waste because you can print parts and validate your designs with, with less machine time, less waste, less shipping, et cetera. We've got a 3D printer that prints a full-size high chair, right? It's pretty shocking and, and pretty good fidelity too. Wow. So we can validate and test our parts. Now, I really think that the, the golden nugget and there's of, of 3D printing is when, if I astro project what the future might be, and this is kind of science fiction, but it's actually starting to happen, is that you, when you're able to regrind the material, when you're able to take your winter saucer sled, right, at home and regrind it and turn it into a, an Adirondack chair, right? right now it's right. like, now you're like, oh, wow, we, we need more chairs this week. And what don't we need? What can we, then, then actually material becomes a, a form of currency, right? So you can imagine how cool that would be when you could regrind the material and reprint it. But there's companies doing amazing stuff with 3D printing, but it's corner case in terms of 3D printing for manufacturing. There's some really great stuff happening, but it's still got a long way to go. Yeah. So, but in terms of, you know, the location aspect of it, does it shrink the, the problem? Like you mentioned earlier, like how you walked across the street and you checked out this product and you took two screws out of it and added two snaps instead. If you prototype something, would you know that? Would you have known that fact? Absolutely. Yeah. And for 3D printing, it's not unlike when I learned how to design, I had to learn how to draft. And when I was at Fisher Price, I remember I had to draft a roller skate. Now, if you've never drafted before, maybe this won't be it's really hard to draft a roller skate because it's organic, right? So then CAD came along and it was like, didn't want to learn it really hard. And like, you know, I was like, you got to learn now, learn Japanese, right? This is like, well, I didn't go to school. I, I like a pencil and I like my eraser guide and I like my drafting table. But it turned out that the, you know, I want you to think of like, you know, 3D printing is like what CAD is to drafting, right? The displacement. But 3D printing has, has certainly closed the gap made things more efficient and validate designs much more. But, you know, the other element of location, and I think the big game changer for location is going to be robotics. I think the future is going to be build where you sell. And there's some grumblings of, you know, some indication that, you know, some offshore investments of Chinese and so forth are buying up burned out factory spaces in, in Detroit and in, in Buffalo and Cleveland, my hometown, where the Rust Belt might be rethought where your Nike shoes might be built in the town you live in, right? By a robot. So, so they're buying these buildings in anticipation of something like this, where we can have things built more locally and they wouldn't be all, you know, shipped over to China and then manufacturing, moving parts all over the place and raw materials. Yeah. I'm, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that people are quietly investing in what that opportunity is. And I don't have any direct connections there, but what I think is, you know, factory space that can be bought really cheap, burned out factory space, you know, in, in the Rust Belt area where you're on a waterway, right? Where you have what could be a really effective distribution center 
could be the, the places where they get rehydrated with, with robots mm. and they become lights out factories because now, look, right now, actually a few years ago, probably five years ago, I came across a robot that could debone a chicken. Now, when you think about that, tons of variability, right? So you've got chickens that are generally, you know, it's a messy business that has a high rate of turnover and, you know, in the workforce and it's dangerous and sloppy and there's tons of variability. So once you can do that, right, then it becomes like, well, are you going to have a Fanuc or ABB robot, you know, replacing what is now known as cheap labor offshore? Because when I look at the FOB costs or freight on board costs and the lead times of doing stuff, right, just in time manufacturing, that you see in your grocery store is going to come to the supply chain of your local Target and Walmart or your, your local Amazon, right? It's going to be like, wow, these things were made. Not only do they come to you like in, you know, 24 hours, they're still warm from the factory, right? Because it's not that far away. Right. You know, they're, I mean, they're doing that with like food now with vertical farming indoors. So there's mm -hmm. no pesticides and insecticides and things like that. But you know, I always worry about, you know, what kind of air environment are these plants growing in? Because, you know, I get into the, the, the weeds, if you will, no pun intended, but yeah. you know, like the bacteria that, that is in buildings, because, you know, that's a whole nother topic in terms of like, I wouldn't call it sick buildings, but, you know, different buildings and different interior spaces in the buildings have different types of, you know, natural bacteria. And if those indoor growing zones don't have good airflow from outside, then they're not going to get a well-balanced bacteria that ends up going on the plant, in the plant, and of course being digested from you. Mm -hmm. Before we go any further on that, because I know we can just keep talking and talking and talking, I love that. But I, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, if you could wish, if you could just wave your magic wand, what one thing would you change in your industry to make things more sustainable? How to make things more sustainable? Well... I kind of brought up this analogy in a, in a talk I, was, I just gave recently, so maybe I'll rehydrate it. If there was some way for us to be more conscious, I watched this movie called Free Solo. It's about this guy, Alex Honnold, I think it's Honnold, I think his name is. Anyway, he climbs, he climbs El Capitan without a rope. It's terrifying to watch, right? Yes, I've seen that. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's a really incredible movie because, you know, he goes up as high as he can until he hits an impasse and then he has to go sideways and down, right. To go up to find another way, you know, not being a mountain climber, I thought you just keep going up. How hard can it be? Right. Turns out it's a lot harder than that. I think our economy, our ecology is headed into that impasse where, you know, we can't go any higher, right? We can't, we can't consume anymore. And I think as a globe, as a, as a nation, it's not going to be comfortable for anyone to go sideways and down, right? Which means right. you might have to take some compromises. We might have to take it in the shorts and maybe think about how we have fewer things of better quality. You know, I think there's some some shocking metrics out there. I don't have the data in front of me, but you know, there are more mini storages now for to store people's extra stuff than there are McDonald's or it's like a tremendous business. People have too much stuff. We have too much stuff. So I think, you know, what does it take to go sideways and down to find a new path up to a greater height, you know, so we can soar and and you know, but that's a very visceral connection, right? There's a very visual thing. And when you watch that movie, there's a visceral response to watching that because the consequences are very visible. Vis you know, one lot wrong, the guy's got nothing but a bag of chalk in his hands, right? He's free climbing this thing without a rope. So if he slips, we're done, right? I think, I think if, the con if the consequences of our global ecology were somehow more visible, right? Like, I want you to imagine, like, what would it be like if every tailpipe in a, in a traffic jam was emitting like lime green smoke, right? what would a traffic jam look like, right? It's suddenly to go, wow, oh my gosh, that's a pretty bad situation. I, I think that 
if we could just be somehow become more visibly aware of the impact we have, but we, I think sort of psychologically, we live in a bubble that we hope everything will be okay. And we hope everything will be all right. And we're going to continue keep, you know, keep the party going. That's what we want to do, but there's a reality to the consequences of that. So if I could change anything, I think I like people to come become more aware or more conscious of the decisions they're making about, about buying fewer things of a better quality and really push a quality standard and also make things more serviceable. Things that are built to last can actually be, there could be a great revenue system. I know when you go to a restaurant these days, there's this, you know, there's this new phenomenon with you know, wireless menus. There's like a QR code on the table, right? Now I want right. you to imagine, imagine that every product has a QR code on it and, and I'm at the dispatch center, right? And, and you wave this thing and it tells you don't need any software. It tells you you own the, you've got the XK529 whatever, right? I, and it connects you to me in the distribution center and you need a new caster wheel or you need a new piece or part. I can drop chip that to you. But and now I have an opportunity to make a direct connection with you, right? The end user, a direct connection. A direct connection with this user. Yeah. So you might, you may, you might've bought the product at Target or whatever, who cares, right? Or anywhere. But now when you're, when you're, when you go to service that product, now I have an opportunity to form a direct relationship with you, the owner of that product. And you're going to use that product. You know, you might off it and sell it on Craigslist or you might eBay it, or you might get rid of it in the garage sale, right? The next person picks it up, right? They have an opportunity to service that product, to refresh that product. If it has, you know, fabrics or soft goods or something. So now I can drop ship a refresh kit or parts that you need to keep that product in life and service and form a direct connection. But I could also track the logistics of that product, right? So I might say, wow, you bought it. You bought it in Seattle and now it's in Vancouver, right? You can have like a, a living history of a product from the manufacturer's side, from the company side. The whole life cycle. And, and then if somebody, you know, and what here, but here's, here's where it hits the triple bottom line. Maybe I make a little bit of margin if you bought it on Target, right? Maybe as a, as a factory owner or business owner, I make a little bit of margin. But if I can form a direct connection to the end user through a service model to keep the product in service, now, you know, you might want to, maybe you want a different seat cushion or maybe you want a different color or something, right? Yep. Now I drop ship that in a pizza box, right? It doesn't have to have four color print. I don't need to sell it to you in a big way. I just send it out to you in a recycled box. Now I made a little more margin on you. Then it's the profit part of the triple bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. And now I'm keeping the product, right? In service longer, right? While I'm still making a profit. So it has a, it impacts the planet. It's good for the planet to keep a product in its life cycle. You know, so many products are like, you know, this, uh, the damn wheel's broken on this thing. Well, what do we do? We'll throw it out instead of like, you know, how hard would it be to, you know, put a new wheel on? And then once you get into recycling something, then it's like all the energy that's involved in dismantling it and putting all the metal here and the rubber there or whatever there. And exactly. then you got to separate it all and then it has to go through the process and be you know, reconstructed into raw material. And that's a whole process itself. And then one thing that drives me crazy sometimes is like, you know, a lot of our electronics, you know, you I, like anytime I, you know, electronic goes out. I, I take it to Apple if it's an Apple product, but other, otherwise, you know, I have to take it to specific places, and there's not a lot of them, to have them recycle an electronic, you know, piece of equipment. And because you can't fix it, like who, who fixes a DVD player? You know, no one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then the, the third, the third pillar is, is people, right? So now I don't know who, I don't know who's buying our products at Target, but if I have a, if I have a service model, right. And I'm able to keep those products in service. Now I can make a meaningful connections with the end users. And you know, that, that includes the first time buyer, the second time buyer who might buy it on, you know, Craigslist or eBay, 
or the garage sale purchaser. And now there might be five, seven years of, of revenue coming in, but also an opportunity to make a direct connection to those end users. You know, I, that reminds me of a t-shirt that I once bought at this earthy, well thought out, sustainable shop. And I looked at the tag and the tag had a QR code on it. And this is years ago. And I was like, wow, I've never seen a QR code there. And then I hit it. And then when I hit it, I pulled up the history of that product that was in my hand, like the farmers that made the fabric, the material that made it, and then the the families that are the people that that worked in the shop where it was made and built and constructed, and then the shipping of it from whatever country. And then here it is in front of me, boom. And then by doing so, that connected me with the manufacturer of that product. And then I was on their mailing list and now they had a connection with me. And it's like exactly what you said, but you know, I like where you took it a lot further in terms of like products that could break down and having that connection of fixing it and, you know, keeping it going and maybe making it last that much longer. Even if you want to, like you said, change the color of something or change the wheels or whatever, you know, customize it to what you want. And the manufacturer, the company can then, you know, follow the the product as opposed to just the consumer, because if it changes hands, they're still following the product and making money on the product, which is the bottom line, but it's more sustainable that way. And they're focused on people, you know, yeah, you, you have more points of light, right? You're able, to, you're able to reach people as opposed, instead of just, you know, just retailers. Then when the product is out of service, you can ask them to, you know, either send it back or, or recycle it responsibly and then incentivize them to buy a new one. Like, hey, I'm really sorry you bought that thing, but I see, you know, this is in the last year of its life cycle. You really should buy a new one. And then you can encourage them to buy your latest generation product at some discount code or what have you. So you can form these meaningful relationships with their end users. So having talked about you know, the challenges and your wishes. What do you strive for as a designer in your field? Like what's the the thing that drives you to get the goal, you know, as the award, I guess? Oh, well, I mean, that is a great question because if you had asked me this, you know, earlier in my career, even, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, I'm striving for an IDSA gold award or a, a red dot award or, you know, fast company, whatever. Those are sort of the industry accolades or they're like winning an Oscar, right? And you get one and you win one and, and you get bigger roles, right? You get leading roles, you get all those things. So, so, but those are very gratuitous. There's no shame in those. We still, we still campaign now and then, but not with the veracity we used to. You know, what we strive for now is five stars on Amazon. That's the bottom line thing. Who we care about, we care about end users. Of course, I, I care a lot about what my in- industry peers think, or, or maybe a panel of judges, you know, appointed by a credible organization. But what I really care about is getting great reviews on Amazon. I mean, that, that's sort of the new, the new benchmark as a five-star review. You know, it's interesting you say that because like, you know, I find myself doing this all the time. I'm in a shop, in a store, and I pick up a product and it could be a food product or it could be a book or it could be anything. And the first thing I do, my mind is like, what's the reviews on this product? Mm-hmm. What do people say about this product? And I will whip out my phone and I will you know, capture the, the, the code in my Amazon app. And then I read the reviews and, you know, I, you know, yes, I'll look at the price right then there to see how much cheaper it might be on Amazon or sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I want to know the reviews, you know, I, that, that's, that's really what I'm going for. And I buy things like, even if it's like five, 10% more, but it's right there and I can have it right that moment, I'll buy it. But the one thing I want to know is, is it worth buying? What are the, what are the reviews like? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's sort of open source to evaluating the quality integrity of product 
it's liberated it from, you know, years ago, you had to have a good housekeeping seal of approval or whatever the case may have been, right? To a handful of people who, who passed a judgment of quality and, you know, and usability and acceptance, all those metrics, right? They, they, somebody else decided now that it's open source, you know, I, gosh, what did I just buy? I, I just bought a, a straw cowboy hat on Amazon, right? Because it's hot as blazes here in, in Atlanta. So, you know, I, I looked at a lot of reviews and I saw ones that I liked ornamentally. I thought, yeah, that's cool. That's me. And then I would go into the reviews and says, yeah, you know, it didn't last whatever. And I'm thinking, well, okay, I, you know, I don't want junk, right? I'm not, cause I'm, I, I'm conscious and you'll like this Taylor. Cause I know, I know like I'm a kind of a petrol gearhead. Like I, I kind of live at the, the polarities of like, I love, you know, performance automobiles, but I'm conscious about greens, but, you know, I think you've done a lot to transform my thinking. So I'm thinking about, you know, the carbon footprint of sending a cowboy hat in a box, right? It's not a small item, right? It's like, can I get this locally cheaper? Right. You know, is this really, is the juice worth the squeeze? Right. And if I am going to do this, like, yeah, of course there's the price metric for sure, but I don't want, I don't want to vote with my dollars on something that's like a vapid product that might satisfy my ego for a small little window, but then it doesn't last. Right. So there's, there's more metrics coming into play. Like, you know, what's the total life cycle of that? You know, where was it made? Will it last me? You know, there's more things that I think are coming into play there that are, and you know, what's encouraging is I'm seeing, I'm seeing the reviews become less vapid too. Like the people who write reviews tend to be thoughtful consumers. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of guardrail conditions around, you know, the honesty of that. So I, I kind of think that there's, it's a good metric. So yeah, I, I care what end users think more than anything. I, I think, and, you know, I'm sure there's others. I, I suppose if I had a, a restaurant, maybe it'd be Yelp, but, but I, I really, I like delighting people more than I like to, delighting my industry peers. So I, I strive for the, the real metrics that come from other sources than, than just, you know, design awards. We're talking about two things and one, you said the Amazon review, but that's about people and it's about bottom line, because I mean, when you see a five-star product at Amazon and it's, you know, winning the buy box and it's, you know, it's selling a lot of, it's because people love the product, whatever that, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're, you're delighting people. Now, if they can just do that and have that sustainable part to it, then it's the three-legged soul, the triple bottom line, as far as I'm Exactly. You know, you know, and what makes me absolutely crazy, it angers me, and I won't say who the company is, but there's a company that's part of a system and they have, <laughs> and, they, and, and it's, a consu- it's in a consumable industry, okay? And when I buy their consumables, I often get them sent in separate boxes and there'll be like one little part in a giant box and then I'll get another box and another box when everything could have fit in one box. And I just, I just, uh, this makes me, this makes me crazy. You know, the part about that that makes me crazy is because I know paper so well, like how it's made and how it's recycled. And the part that kills me is every time I'm breaking down a box to recycle it, you, you can only break down pulp so many times. It's the integrity of the, the strand of the pulp. And when those strands get so, so small, because every time it recycles, it, keep, it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You, that's like sometimes when you see some, you know, cardboard boxes and you open it up and it basically just disintegrates on itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's because <laughs> that, that is a very low quality paper pulp, you know, product. And we're going to, we're going to start finding new things to put it into. Like, I don't know this, but I keep thinking like, you probably know the, the compressed fiberboard, mm-hmm. not the compressed fiberboard. It's the one that's like really small. It's mostly just glue with a little bit of fiber. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like MDF or something. Yeah. MDF. That's what I'm thinking of. I would consider that probably the end, you know, location of where 
you know, recycled paper goes to die, if you will. Be sure. And also, you know, the same holds true, by the way, for plastics. Virgin material is, is pure, and then they have what's called regrind. So the ratio regrind, right, which is how much of the, And even, by the way, when they make parts, they might make parts, and the, the, the parts that don't come off the line don't pass quality might get, go into a hopper, get reground, and squirted back in to make more parts. But there, you can only do that so many times, and then the, the material loses its integrity. So the physical characteristics of the product just aren't there anymore. It just starts to... Yeah, exactly. Like the plastic will not be the same after you regrind it so many times. Very similar to what you described with with paper and pulp. The same holds true for plastic. It can only be reground so many times. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sustainability is definitely, I mean, it's kind of the part that got me, you know, when I first broke off my, my company, when I started my company 13 plus years ago... It was all about sustainability because that was a big thing back then. And people and companies just didn't know how to communicate in that space. And with my advocacy history and investor relations, I've really had a good understanding of how to position people and their marketing materials and weave the two together into one piece. Whereas now with you know the triple bottom line and focusing on people as well as profit, always profit, but people, sustainability and profit, I feel like it's, it's a much more holistic approach. And, you know, I have so many different people I want to reach out to, to discuss those three different points, the three-legged stool, if you will, like I said. And again, <laughs> yeah. some, some people are more involved in one than the other, but, you know, I, I think we all just mentally need to have a better understanding of all three. Because even if you're, you're, your job is, you know, your chief sustainability officer, but, you know, it's good and it's important to know the bottom line of, you know, the, the cost and the profit of the company as well, but also the aspect of how the company, you know, treats its employees and the community and all, everybody along the chain of manufacturing to the end user. I think if we're all just cognizant of that, we all play our part, but we're all, you know, aware of everybody else's responsibilities and actions. I feel like we're covering all the bases if we do that. And that's, that's why I wanted to start this conversation because I really wanted to talk about boots on the ground. Like I said earlier, I want to hear from people that are actually doing it and thinking it and maybe leading it and talking about it and just having that, that discussion. What I find fascinating, and this just occurred to me right now, this moment, but it's my aha moment from this conversation and that, you know, people, planet and profit, those are the three pillars that matter, but there's another P that almost everyone focuses on almost exclusively. And that's perception. Mm. Like that perception is what people care about. You know, it's the wrong P. <laughs> it's the wrong <laughs> P, you know, so it's I a four-legged school. Yeah. Well, you know, well, look, you know, you've seen it. Come on. You know, we, you know, you're, you're looking at it, you're watching TV and you see a company. And again, I don't want to throw any companies under the bus, but you know what they make. Right. And then they do a feel good story and there's windmills in the background and happy babies and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like all the, but you know, it's really wrapped around the perception more than anything, right? At the end of the day, how committed are they really, right? Uh, to, to really making a difference. Now, you know, maybe that's a start. Maybe we're making incremental steps towards it, but I actually think that we're at an inflection point now where I'm excited to move beyond the perception and move into the other triple bottom line. Like, let's make, let's get real about it. Cause you know, unless we have that, that triple bottom line conversation, then it'll only be perception. You know, that, that was very interesting. You said that because I remember back in the day when people were talking about greenwashing, greenwashing, cause people were just so you know upset about it. But like, I remember when everybody knows the story where they took 30% of the plastic out of a, out of a water bottle. Yeah. And they said, Oh, they're greenwashing because it's, it's just still plastic, but it's 30% less. And I said, yes, but it is in fact better because it's using less material, less plastic, less plastic, wherever that thing lands, but it's still better. 
and we just need to keep making things better. And then that was way before we were talking about, you know, corn-based plastics and biodegradable plastics and things like that. But I think that's it. I mean, like, even when people were flat out, you know, greenwashing, I, I'm just an optimist. So I would say, you know, even though they're doing that, they are changing the perception that sustainability is needed, wanted, valued. And that is a noble thing. Yeah. And that is a noble thing. And, that, and, and then what's going to happen next after that, the competitor is going to come out and they're actually going to do it. And then when they know they do it, you know, they're more sustainable and they actually accomplish what the other companies saying they're doing, then that starts to struggle. And then they, they, you know, who earns the market share? Well, people like you are helping them do that. And, and that's honorable, you know. I think that's that's really important work, noble work. Interestingly enough, you know, and 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 it's gonna it's also gonna have to convert to consumer behavior because, you know, the bottled water craze was actually created. You know, back when I was a kid, bottled water was like there was there was spring water and distilled water, and it was about about a foot off the ground where the mop hit the floor at night, and it was sold in two gallon jugs, right? And you put, and and it wasn't bottled water. What made bottled water popular was putting bottled water in water clear, optically clear plastic. Because cognitively, that's what it took. The absence of impurity was the cognitive <laughs> trip that made yeah. people think this water is valuable. Now, what does that mean in the future? Does it mean we have to become more comfortable with the fact that maybe the, you know, the bottle doesn't have to be optically clear to contain good water, right? Maybe, maybe we can use a, a reground plastic that isn't optically clear and create a more sustainable water bottle, right? Or, and, and we've seen things like box water and stuff made, you know, tremendous strides towards converting people's hearts and minds towards more sustainable solutions. So I think we're coming around and I'm, I'm encouraged by all involved who are, who are rolling the rock forward. Yeah, I agree. You know, like I said, I mean, we have a, we have a long road to go. And like you mentioned that earlier analogy of that climber, you know, that, that made me think about so many different things. And it's, you know, some people say that being sustainable you know, oh, it costs more. I, you know, that's not always the case nowadays. When we first started out, it was more the case than it is now. But nowadays, people are becoming more innovative and coming up with different ideas and coming at, you know, problems in a totally different, you know, perspective. So I don't know if we have to go down and over like that climber, like you mentioned, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's to be seen. And you know what, maybe, I mean, you know, of course, there's so many different ways to do this, but some people might have to do that. They might have to go down and over to go up and some people might find a way to get over. So there's all different types of ways of getting to the solution, but I'm glad that the solution is starting to really focus more on, like I said, the triple bottom line. That's, that's why, you know, I'm doing this. And when I started understanding the triple bottom line way back in like 2003 or four, I really thought by now it would just be a caught on like fire. And I can't believe how many people I talk about the triple bottom line and they just be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God, because I've been living it and breathing it and reading it and, you know, all that stuff for so long that to me, it's just, it's just part of my daily existence. So I hope that this podcast starts to help open people's minds and gets in front of people like you and hear their thoughts and their ideas. And, you know, I just hope it pushes the train forward a little bit. Me too. This has been a lot of fun. You know, you know us, we can keep going and going. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, we can. So yeah. I'm going to wrap it up here. So Frank, how do people reach out to you and get connected with you if they want to, you know, know more about what you're doing and what, what's going on in your world? Yeah. Hey, thanks for asking. I'll try to make myself available to anyone who's curious about, you know, opening up the conversation or, or anything that any way I can help. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find me at cinderhousestudios.com, C-I-N-D-E-R, cinderhousestudios.com. I actually have my own podcast, largely inspired by you, 
and another friend of mine in Austin. You guys encouraged me to do it. It's called Frankify. So you can search for that. And the first one I did was on design portfolio. That's interesting. That's cool. I, I can't wait to listen to more of your podcasts. I know that you got a lot of hits on that one. So I'm looking forward to following you up on that. So thank you for being our guest today on the very first podcast for the Triple Bottom Line. And I am so excited. And I have so many people I just cannot wait to reach out to and, and get this thing rolling. So thank you, Frank, for being our first podcast interviewee. And I look forward to uh, having you on again. So thank you once again. Anytime. Thank you so much. All right. Over and out. Thanks for tuning in to The Triple Bottom Line. Your host, Taylor Martin, is founder and chief creative of Design Positive, a strategic branding and accessibility agency. Interested in being interviewed on our podcast? Then visit designpositive.co and fill out our contact form. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we would appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever provider you're logging in from. This podcast is prepared by Design Positive and is not associated with any other entity. We look forward to having you back for another installment of The Triple Bottom Line.